0: Three, But I felt like as we were kind of preparing to jump into chapter three, we should probably have a uh, a reminder of where we've been. You know, one of those, you know, shows kind of at the beginning, you know, oftentimes, you know, especially back before you could actually binge watch shows, right, when they actually came on once a week. You know, and, you know, you would get things like, previously on. So, like, this is like, you know, this is, you know, our third week in our, in our mini-series here. So, previously on in Ruth, you know, like, we were in chapter one, uh, and we, we found that, that chapter one, verse one began in the days of the judges, which really sets up for us the time frame, the picture, uh, of, of what life was like in Israel at that time. And in Judges, there's a repeated theme over and over where there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It is the dark, the darkest almost moment in Israel's history when they are at their absolute worst, their absolute ugliest, right? And throughout the book of Judges, you have these. Judges who are who are really more like almost like little uh, little kings who kind of come in for a moment for a period of time they set everything right and then they kind of disappear out of the picture and Israel does what is right for a little while and then they f- immediately fall off the wagon again usually it doesn't take very long they fall off the wagon and you keep progress things keep getting progressively worse as you read the book of Judges right if you remember back to our Gideon series Gideon is a judge who's kind of a hinge point in that where like from him, nothing gets better everything just gets goes horribly wrong from Gideon on he has a son named Abimelech which means my dad is king and at the time where God was supposed to be the only king of Israel Abimelech acts like a king Gideon acts like a king and everything goes pear-shaped in Israel over and over this is the this is the story of the judges until you get to the last two chapters of judges and it's just horrendous what takes place. What the people who were supposed to be the people of God do. Because what they end up doing, they look worse than the people around them. They're horrible. right? And this is where the book of Ruth takes place. And what it tells us is that not everybody in Israel was awful and terrible. There was always still a remnant of people who even lived, lived righteously. And we talked about how in chapter one, we don't know whether Elimelech, which means God is king, whether Elimelech and his family, with his wife Naomi and his two sons Mahlon and Kilian, whether they were people who really followed God or not. The story is ambiguous, and it's ambiguous on purpose because the first chapter, I think, really deals heavily with suffering. Right? Naomi loses her husband, Elimelech, he dies. The two sons marry two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. But then the two sons die. And Ruth and Naomi and Orpah are left with no one. Naomi sends Ruth and, and Orpah back home, says, go back to your house, live in your house. Look, I can't take care of you. I'm too old. If we went back to Israel, it wouldn't go well for you. It wouldn't go well for me because I'd have another mouth to feed. Like, Look, just go back home because everything's going to be better for you there. You're still young. You've still got time. You can have kids. You can get married, all that kind of stuff. And Orpah goes back home, but Ruth does not. Ruth utters these famous the lines that your God will be my God, your people will be my people. And she goes back to Israel with Naomi. And so we remember that Naomi and Ruth are two broken women. Utterly broken. They've lost everything. And just as Naomi iterates in the first chapter, both of them have gone from full empty Naomi says that she left Israel that she left Bethlehem full and now she tells people when she returns home that she has returned empty and we are reminded that oftentimes there is suffering deep suffering in this world and we don't necessarily get an answer why straight up we don't know why But the encouraging thing is we got to the end of chapter one and we read that they, that Naomi had just so happened to hear, you know, in verse five, that Naomi had just so happened to hear that the famine was over in Israel and that the barley was, or that the harvest, it was the time of, of harvest. And as we got then to the end that they arrived in Bethlehem in the late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest, we realized that all of this is not coincidence that God is at work, even though the narrator is silent about these things. What we are to see and to understand as we read is that God is at work underneath all of this, even through the trial, even through the pain, even through the difficulty. That while that may not have been like, you know, it's like sometimes things happen, right? Because we live in a world that is broken, corrupted, and not the way things were always intended to be. And sometimes tragedy just strikes. But God is still at work, even amidst that tragedy. And it doesn't take away from the tragedy of the event to say that that was traumatic and horrible and terrible. But what it means is that God is so sovereign that he can even take that which is awful and terrible, that sort of suffering that feels completely unjustified or, un, uh, you know, like, why me, God, when we're crying out in those moments, that, that we can trust that God is at work. And that was weak. That was week one. We saw too that that while Naomi is understandably crushed, right? She says that she has gone from full to empty and from pleasant to bitter. We have Ruth, who is also crushed. But when Ruth goes from full to empty, she presses into God, right? Your God will be my God. You can't send me home. I'm coming with you, and your God will be my God. She doesn't blame God in that moment of brokenness. She moves towards Him. And I think what we see then as well in this first chapter is we see Ruth come alongside of Naomi and pick her up and carry her when she is broken. And one of the other things that we talked about then in week one is as a church, we need to do that for the people in our, in our community that are broken. That when somebody in our community feels like I don't have the strength or the faith to carry on, I am bitter. Call me Mara. That as a church, rather than judge that person and, and you know and point our finger and wag, you know, well if you just had a little more faith, it's like, no. That is a time when we grab that person, we pick them up, and we carry them with us. Right? That was week one, Act One. As we got to, uh, as we got to Act Two. It reminds us then that God is indeed at work; that His grace and His kindness are everywhere, at work in the background through the free choices of individuals. That God shows grace and kindness, and is at work in the background, in the mundane. Right? We, if you remember, we read and we uh, read that phrase, and as it happened. Or as chance chanced upon, and we are meant to see that it is not chance at all. It is not accident, but as it happened, or sorry, Ruth found herself working in a field that belonged to a man named Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law Elimelech, and while she was there, Boaz just so happened to arrive from Bethlehem and greet. The harvesters. And what we see is that the author wants us to know this is not an accident. God is at work. God is sovereignly working through the free choice of individuals. And you know what? Throughout church history, people have argued over how exactly that works, how exactly all of that plays out. But I think one thing that that Christians throughout history, we agree on is that God is able to work through even the free choices of individuals to work out his will and his good pleasure. And here we find God working on behalf of Naomi and on behalf of Ruth to provide for them. And it just so happens that Ruth just so happens to stumble into a field that just so happens to belong to a relative that just so happens to be a guy of the kind of character that just might redeem their family and take care of them. And as we looked at chapter 2, what we saw over and over is the character of Boaz, the grace and the kindness that Boaz shows Ruth. He doesn't need to show the level of kindness that he shows to her, yet he does. It is completely extravagant what he does for her the amount of grain that she is able to bring home in the evening so that Ruth and Naomi may have food not just for today but for a good while to come and then we looked at then how God is even better than Boaz right that Jesus is a better Boaz who provides for us graciously and kindly That God cares for even those that feel unimportant, that feel unloved, unwelcome, undeserving, and seemingly insignificant. That God loves you and cares for you. And that suffering is not the final answer, but rather we see God's care for Naomi and for Ruth. And so that's where we were. That's that catches us up, hopefully, on the last two weeks. And now let's go ahead and let's read chapter three together. Chapter three starts this way. One day, Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours. And he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with, this young, with his young women. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor. But don't let Boaz see you until he is finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. "'Who are you?' he asked. "'I am your servant Ruth,' she replied. "'Spread the corner of your covering over me, "'for you are my family redeemer.' "'The Lord bless you, my daughter,' Boaz exclaimed. "'You are showing even more family loyalty now "'than you did before, "'for you have not gone after a younger man, "'whether rich or poor. "'Now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. "'I will do what is necessary, "'for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman.'" But while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man who is more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning I will talk to him. If he's willing to redeem you, very well, let him marry you. But if he is not willing to redeem, if he's not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until morning. So Ruth, lay at Boaz's feet until the morning. But she got up before it was light enough for people to recognize each other. For Boaz had said, No one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. Then Boaz said to her, Bring your cloak and spread it out. He measured six scoops of barley into the cloak and placed it on her back. Then he returned to town. When Ruth went back to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, What happened, my daughter? Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz had done for her. And she added, He gave me these six scoops of barley and said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said to her, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has settled things today. So as we read the passage, there is a lot going on in there. There's a lot of, I would say, maybe even some, some cultural stuff going on there. Now, we're not going to spend as much time this week unpacking um, some of that stuff. But I just kind of wanted to summarize. I suppose this week, what we find really is that time is running short for Ruth and Naomi. Harvest time is about over. All right? And I just, you just almost assume, Naomi is going like, you know, ever since chapter 2, when it just so happened they got into the field of Boaz, that Naomi has been scheming, going, all right, this is perfect. Boaz is going to redeem our family. He's going to redeem Ruth and me. But he hasn't. He hasn't yet. And we don't get an answer as to why. Now, it says that there is somebody closer that could have redeemed Naomi and and. And Ruth, and we don't know, perhaps Boaz, he's a good guy, right? I mean, everything that we know of Boaz is he is a good guy. You think he's the kind of guy that would see the problem and go, I'm going to fix it. And so, at least for me, as I read the story, I think Boaz must have known there's somebody closer and he's going, this guy needs to do his business, like he needs to go redeem redeem Ruth and Naomi like I mean maybe he's even thinking like time's getting short what's this guy thinking but Naomi she has in her mind she goes no it's going to be Boaz and so she sends Ruth to go and basically push things forward she tells Ruth go and you know put on your best clothes right so probably what's happening Naomi has or sorry Ruth has been in her morning clothes right you think back to like you know I don't know, like uh, the Victorian era or something like that. I mean, people had like mourning clothes and they would wear them for a very long time. It, w- it would go on for a period of time where every day, like, you know, a widow would wear black. You know, she would kind of show everybody that she's sad, that she is a widow, that she has been, you know, uh, she's been left alone. And so it was kind of a thing that you would do to mourn that person for a long time. You would wear those types of clothes. And, and so, kind of what, what most people think is happening here is what Naomi is saying is Ruth. Put on some nice clothes. Let Boaz know you're available. <laughs> right? Let him know you're ready to move forward, that it's time to, for you to move forward. Right? And, and so it seems like Naomi is a bit more subtle with it. Like she, wants, she wants Ruth to go, um, to, go to Boaz, but she wants Ruth to be a bit more subtle. And what we find then is Ruth is actually extremely forward. She basically just proposes marriage uh, to Boaz, which is, which is interesting. She moves forward, I think, Ruth does, in bold faith. And we'll talk a little bit here about all the things kind of going on in this passage. But first, in verse 3-1, we read... One day, Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I've found a permanent home for you. Okay? That's what the New Living Translation says. Um, The NIV says something very similar. If you're using the ESV or you're using the King James, uh, for instance, it's going to use something, it's a more direct translation, and it's going to say, seek rest for you. Okay? Now, the New Living and NIV, that's not a bad translation. Okay? Okay? But I want us to get that idea of seeking rest into our into our heads. I think it's important. In this context, the reference to Ruth's status as a, as a widow in a strange land... Uh, um, uh, yeah, sorry. The reference is to Ruth's status as a widow in a strange land. And this desired resting place, then, is a secure home with a husband to care for her. right? Because it's a very uncertain future for her... Uh, And Naomi is really thinking about Ruth. She wants Ruth to have a secure future. And this is the way for her to have it, to be at rest, to feel like I'm taken care of. I'm secure. I am safe. Okay, that's what Naomi desires for Ruth. But this is a risky move for Naomi and Ruth. What Ruth, or sorry, what Naomi tells Ruth to do is a risky endeavor. This is like two people who are desperate. And it's especially risky for Ruth. All right, so what's going on in this passage, right? Put on your best clothes, smell nice, wait for Boaz to uh, maybe have a little bit of wine before bed, Um, you know, make sure he's full, he's done his harvest for the day, he's laid down for bed, and then go lay down by his feet and uncover his feet what, what's going on? Why is this risky? Why is this weird? Okay? Remember, we're in the time of the judges. People are not acting in moral and upstanding ways. So the only type of woman that would typically show up at a, bar, you know, at a, at a winnowing place like this would be a prostitute. And so who knows what Boaz is going to say? Because you know what? In Israel... The Moabites didn't exactly have the best reputation either. Okay, in Numbers, it talks about how um, Moabite women seduced men of Israel and led them to worship idols and all of this kind of stuff, all sorts of impropriety going on. Right, there's a history here, and so for Ruth, a Moabite woman, to show up at the threshing floor, first off, if she got caught by other people, they're going to think there's something real shady going on here. Right? But even Boaz, I mean, he wakes up in the middle of the night. It actually says you know, like, basically it's like he, he sat up bolt right, like, uh, you know, like, whoa, what is going on? Like, you know, he realized there's somebody at his feet, and he could have made a snap judgment real quick about what she was doing. This is dangerous for her. They're playing a dangerous game, but here's the thing. They know Boaz's character, and Boaz knows Ruth's character. And so neither of them really end up feeling like there's anything improper going on. And we don't have to they don't have to worry about any impropriety happening between the two of them because they are both as we read in the text, two people of the highest character. So why does Naomi do this? <laughs> why does Naomi send Ruth there to do this weird liaison at night. I think a couple of reasons. And maybe this will help us just kind of as we process the text. The reason that Naomi proposes this sort of risky strategy was to find an opportunity for Ruth to talk to Boaz alone. Okay? It would have been next to impossible for her to do that really in any other way. Okay? Because Ruth is a, of lowly status, right? She is a woman, she's a widow, she's a foreigner. Like, everything is going against her. And to be able to kind of say, hey, Boaz, I want to chat with you alone. Like, sorry, that's just not going to happen, right? In their culture, in the time that, in, in the time that this is happening, that's not a thing that's going to happen. Ruth is not going to be able to initiate a conversation with Boaz during daylight. She's got to do it in, in secret. Naomi also realized that Boaz would not want gossip about his relationship to spread throughout Bethlehem. Right? Let's just say for a moment that Ruth had been able to get Boaz off to the side and, and chat with him in private. Again, we're talking small town here. If you remember, like Bethlehem is not a big place. And now the whole gossip train gets moving at full speed. And finally, I think Naomi contrived this plan to allow Ruth to meet Boaz alone. Or sorry, I think this is why Naomi contrived this plan to allow Ruth to meet Boaz alone and in secret. But again, it is risky because if anybody had seen them, and Boaz recognizes this, right? He's like, we can't let anybody know you were here. Because people are going to think things and they're going to say things and it's going to it, it could get ugly, right? So this is like a weird. It is a weird scenario, not one I would recommend. Okay, like just just to say something like this, not necessarily what I would recommend for you. Okay, this happened and it worked out okay, but again, don't use this as an excuse. Like I'm going to go, you know, lay at some guy's feet at night, you know, by his bed. Like okay, like let's just. Let's just lay that out there. Say this is not the not not the uh, the recommendation that here's what you should do, but desperate times called for desperate measures. And in this moment, again, Ruth knows the character of Boaz, and Boaz knows the character of of Ruth. But here's what we see again. I, I want to circle back around to this because I said this a moment ago that that Ruth moves forward in bold faith. And I think what we see then is faith and action go hand in hand. When we read in the scripture about people with faith, right? If you go to Hebrews 11 and you read about people of great faith, each one of those things involves an action, something that they did. Right? Because great faith means that I really believe something. I'm really moving forward on this belief that I believe it so much, right, that I'm willing to step out into the unknown, that I'm willing to step out into the risky because I really truly have faith in this. It's easy to say, oh, I have faith in that and then never step out. But is that really faith? Right? There's a difference between faith and saying like, oh, I believe something to be true. Faith is that when you say, I believe something to be true so much that I'm actually going to move forward trusting in that thing, right? And I love, do you know, I've just been reflecting a lot. Like, I don't I don't know if many of you know Tim Keller, um, like who, who he is. He's, he's somebody that's been like a great benefit in my life. He's one of those people that from a distance, like I've read many of his books and from a distance, he's been incredibly helpful. He actually died this last week. Um, 72 years old of, of pancreatic cancer, um, and so like it's just it, it's got me thinking, uh, honestly, just a lot about how you know things that that have been really helpful in, in my life. And I, I heard him once use the analogy of faith being like, uh, like you know, say you were at the cliffs of Moher or something, and, and you fell off, and as you're falling, you see a branch. It's reaching out and grabbing that branch. Right? You don't have to have a lot of faith, but you still have to have enough to reach out and grab the branch. And it may be in desperation, but faith is still that act of reaching out and grabbing that branch. And I think what we see here is Ruth moving forward in a bold faith, trusting that Yahweh, the God, the faithful, the true has been so full of grace and kindness towards her will continue to be full of grace and kindness for her. And she steps out trusting that. Ruth and Naomi, interestingly, I mean, like there's nothing here that says that they heard the voice of God or sensed his direct leading in this moment. And guys, I think sometimes God does speak to us, whether that's again, through His Holy Spirit and just a feeling like, you know what, I really feel strongly about this is what I need to do. But I also think that a lot of times we find ourselves at crossroads in our lives, we find ourselves desperate and we don't hear the voice of God. We don't feel strongly a push in one direction or another. What do we do? What do we do? That's where Ruth and Naomi are at, I think. They trust God They're willing to step out in faith, and they don't know what God has for them. God has not spoken to them. God did not say, hey, why don't you go and do this? They said, what can we do? We trust that God will take care of us. We trust that God has brought Boaz into our lives, that God has has not through coincidence, but through purposeful action brought Boaz into our lives. Now, how do we move things forward Ruth and Naomi, they don't hear the voice of God. They don't feel his sense of direct leading. They simply put their trust in Him and they step out to the best of their ability in faith, trusting that God will take care of them. That's what I think we see here. And I think this will be at times what God is calling us to do as well. There are times... And I, again, I think you guys have had that. Alyssa and I have been there plenty of times where we've been praying about something and no matter how long it feels like we've been praying for it, it just it doesn't feel like there's some clear direction that says, here's what you should do. Or even just a strong feeling of like, here's what we should do. And you kind of go like, I, I don't know. And it's that being willing to step forward. I think about even the fact that we're here in Ireland. Right? So Alyssa and I, we wanted to go somewhere that wasn't America. And we wanted to work in church planning, do something with, with starting churches. And we were thinking about uh, somebody had mentioned Ireland to us as a possibility. And we thought, oh, well, maybe that. Yeah, maybe. And we were praying about that. Then somebody mentioned Taiwan to us. And we were thinking, well, maybe, I don't know. And we were praying about it. And you know what? I never got a strong feeling. God did not speak to me and say, move to Ireland, you know, or something like that. That didn't happen. It didn't happen to Alyssa either. We were praying separately. We were praying together. And we came together at one point, and we were like, I don't know what we should do. And the two of us kind of went, we both feel a little bit more like we would lean towards moving to Ireland. But it wasn't something like I felt like God was pushing us that way. It was just kind of going like, I don't know, maybe. And so we just said, okay, God, We're going to move forward with this. And if this is what you want, please bless it. If it's not, tear it apart. Like, don't let us do it. Like, you know, like, but we're going to move forward in the silence and trust you in the silence. And 12 years later, here we are. Right? God made a way. We've been here for 12 years. Like, you know, and, and, and so I think sometimes that's, that's how it works in our lives too. And so I was just thinking about this. How do we, how do we act in those moments? Right, what do we do? And this isn't something I, I don't, I'm not pulling out three points from the text here or something like that, but just, some, just for the sake of, of hopefully a little bit of wisdom. And um, what do we do in those moments where we need to step forward in faith and yet we don't feel like we've heard from God? I think there's a couple of things. Praying. Okay, I think that's really important. It's like, don't stop praying about it. Keep praying about that thing. Bring it to God over and over. Submitting our will to his. And I think that's really important. Over and over. Praying that prayer, not my will, but yours be done. Dying to ourselves. Saying, I'm not going to make this a selfish decision. Whatever this is, I I don't want to make this a selfish decision. And I think these are really important conversations to have with ourselves and with God, to be praying about it, to submitting and submitting my will to His and seeking God for wisdom, asking God for wisdom. All of those things are really, really important when you enter into those places where you just feel like, I need to step forward in faith, but I'm not quite sure what God is asking me to do. All right? So at the baseline level, that's that's where it starts. The next thing then is I think to ask the question, is what I'm thinking about doing, is where I'm leaning towards, right? is that thing that I'm leaning towards moving forward towards, does it align with God's Word? Because we can be really, really good at manipulating ourselves. You know that, I know that, we all know that we can be really good at convincing ourselves that what we want to do is the right thing to do. And we can feel very spiritual and very holy about it even too sometimes. Like I have heard over my years in ministry, I have heard people justify some of the craziest things. I have probably done it myself at times. Started to justify some things that are foolish. And so if I come back to this, to God's word, and I ask the question, does God's word have anything to say about this? It could put, really quickly put an end to a really stupid decision that I've convinced myself I should do. I'm just saying. Like, that's been my experience where you go, well, maybe, and then you go, mm, actually, no. No, that's a really, that's not a good idea. I think back, this was when we were still living in the States. Uh, There was a guy I I was speaking to. And he was convinced. And he was convinced for a reason that was really silly. That God was calling him to sleep with and move in with his girlfriend. Absolutely convinced. And I asked the question, well, have you checked it against God's word? Like, what do you think, like, what does God's word say about that? Because God's word says a lot about things like sexual immorality, stuff like that. And, he, and his, his, where he went with this, the direction that he went was, well, God just wants me to be happy and this makes me happy, so this is what he wants me to do. He's a good man. Okay, like, look, this is not a bad person. Someone I like very much. Okay, this is not a bad person. It's not some, you know, so I'm not, I'm not saying this is like, I, what I'm saying is, he didn't care what this said. It was all about what he was feeling, and he had talked himself into something that turned out actually to, unsurprisingly, be a really bad idea. And I use that as an example just because I think it's an easy easy one because, again, it's one of those where our culture goes one direction, right? And Scripture tells us to juke in the other, but sometimes that's really hard to do. And so it's easy for us to self justify about things and to say, well, you know, to actually say, well, does God, did God really say, right? That sort of thing, okay? And look, we could go down the road of like, Look, I don't want to. I don't want to sound like. Okay, quick side in that. If 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 what I just said is something you can relate to, there is forgiveness at the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, look, that is like just just hear that. Okay, I'm not standing up here again, wagging my finger at everybody, and saying, "Well, look at everyone else's sins." Like, okay, look, I'm I'm just saying, I use that as an example, but there is no sin that is too far for God to forgive, and we can start new and move afresh. And and, and okay, so just. That's, there's my side, all right. I want to be careful about that. All right, so we discern by through prayer, submitting to ourselves to His will, asking God for wisdom, reading His word, and really seeking. Does this go against something that God has said? You know, I could I could just as easily, and maybe I should have picked on bad business deals, corrupt business deals, because you know what? The Bible has a lot to say about that too. Like cheating on my taxes or money laundering, things like that. You know, taking advantage of people, um, you know, greed. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about that, but we can easily self-justify because we live in a culture that says "get yours," right? Okay, so there we go. I've picked on something else too. Okay. Finally, the question I would say, because the Bible doesn't give a black and white answer to every single thing that we could possibly think of doing. Right? I mean, Paul tries to close the loopholes by saying, and things like these, um, right? But at the end of the day, I think one of the most important things we could do is say, does it look like Jesus? Will I look like Jesus? If I do this thing, <laughs> whatever it is, will I look like Jesus? Or will I not look like Jesus? <laughs> will people see Jesus in what I do? Or will they see something else? Will they go, wow, my goodness, that guy walks the way he talks. Or will they go, geez, that guy's a hypocrite. <laughs> All right. Take that for what you think it's worth. Again, that's not, in the, that's not in Ruth. I just think they're in that kind of situation. And I think it's helpful to think through when we come to those same places that Ruth and Naomi are at, how do we move forward in faith? So, so there you go. So faith and action, they go hand in hand. But here's the other thing that I think we see coming back to Ruth, that I think we see in Ruth. Throughout chapters 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, what we find is that faith is often most fully formed in the cauldron of difficulty and of silence. When I have nothing else left to cling to, when I'm at my end, when faith is all I have left to cling to. That is often when our faith is most strengthened because we have nothing else to fall back on. And I think we see that here. They have nothing else to cling to. And so they cling to faith. Faith. Alright, next thing as we look at the passage, we see is that the chesed of God's people points us to the chesed of God. Now, last week we talked about that word chesed, but I'll just briefly talk about it again, because I know not all of us were here last week, or even if you were, you might not remember, fair enough. I don't remember everything I hear. I, I don't remember everything I said last week either. Um, but the chesed of God. So chesed is the word that is used here. So it's used of, of Ruth. So we find it come up a couple of times. So we find Naomi proclaim that God is showing his chesed. Last week in chapter 2, verse 20. And here we find Boaz say say to Ruth in verse 10 of chapter 3, you are showing even more family loyalty, or chesed, now than you did before. And if we remember um, back to Exodus 34, verse 6, we learn that God shows his chesed, that he is chesed. That's who he is, and that word, when we unpack it, means love, like faithful love, covenant love, covenant loyalty, covenant kindness. It covers a whole big picture of like somebody who is chesed. They are loyal. They are kind. They are faithful. They are loving. They want what is best for other people. It is this I just this incredible word that is hard in English to really capture in one word, right? And so we see that the chesed of God's people, like Ruth and like Naomi and like Boaz, points us to the chesed of God. Now, I'm going to take us back to last week again. And if you remember last week in chapter 2, and it's in verse 12, we read, Boaz, pray this prayer. He says, he says, he prays about Ruth. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. And if we remember, we talked about how wings in the Old Testament symbolize strength and they symbolize protection, right? We, we mentioned the Exodus story, how God carried his people out of Egypt on eagles' wings. I don't know why I just said wings. Um, There's not an H there. Um, Anyway, apologies for wings. Um, I'm just making up new words as they go along. Uh, New pronunciations. Yeah. So anyway, wings in the Old Testament signify strength and protection God carried His people on, on eagles' wings. Um, we read about it in the Psalms, like under the protection of the wings. Uh, like It carries that idea. And so Boaz prays there in chapter 2 that God would bring His protection, that Ruth has sought his, her protection under the wings of God. And he prays then that God would bless that. That because Ruth has stepped out in faith in this way, that God would bless that with protection. That God would bless Ruth. And what we find then in chapter 3, verse um, 9, is that Boaz is the answer to his own prayer. Ruth, I think intentionally, remembers back to Boaz's prayer. And what she says to Boaz, and, and the New Living obscures this a bit, some other translations do as well, because again, they're trying to be clear. She says, I am your servant Ruth. Spread your wings over me, for you are my family redeemer. So in Hebrew, that word wings can also mean the corner of a garment. And I think very intentionally she uses that phrase. I think she remembers what Boaz prayed. And it's kind of like, hey, buddy, (laughs) remember that prayer? Why don't you be the answer? Be the one to bring me protection. Be my strength. And so she asks Boaz to be her redeemer. Now, again, important. this is an important cultural concept because re- redemption is one of the main themes of the book. Okay, so I feel like we need to chat about this for just a moment. When it says Redeemer here, that you are my family Redeemer, it carries with it this idea, right? When somebody was widowed or or died and they didn't have any children, right? Because children were really important in that time. They took care of you. They They were the social welfare system, right? Your kids took care of you and the land passed down from generation to generation. And this is important. Family name, family legacy is all extremely important in this culture. And if you don't have any children and then you're widowed, guess what? It's gone. It's lost. The land is lost. And so the family redeemer, his job, the the primary purpose of a family redeemer was to buy the land so it stayed in the family. And then it could take care of uh, people. It would it would stay you know as part of it belonged to continue to belong to this family. Now this is different than what's called leveret marriage, and maybe you've heard about this, where if um, you know if one brother had a wife and they didn't have any kids, and then he died, the other brother was to marry was to marry the uh, the wife and to give her children and those children would actually belong to his brother. I know you're like, that's weird. OK, it is weird. But it wasn't weird to them. <laughs> that was normal. That was the way they did things. And again, we're not going to break down into why all that made sense within their culture and all of that. Like, if you want to talk about that later, if that's your question later, we can, we can go there. But like, just suffice it to say, as weird as it seems, that's the way it was. Boaz is not a brother. He is not required to do that. Okay, So he's actually not required to marry Ruth. And neither is this other guy who is the closer family redeemer. Their job is to redeem the land. That is what they're to do, to keep the land in the family. Okay? But as we know, Ruth is after more than that. (laughs) She's after more than that. She doesn't just want the land redeemed. She wants a husband to redeem her. And so... Boaz becomes the answer to his prayer. And I was just thinking about this again. Here's the question. In what ways can you be the answer to your prayers? I think sometimes it's really easy to, to say, oh, I'll pray for you, and to pray about something for somebody, when actually we could be the answer to that prayer. That's the hard bit, is to actually say, oh, I could be the answer to that prayer. No, that's not always the case. Obviously, there's lots of things that we pray for for other people that, yeah. sorry, I can't cure cancer. You know, like that's not something I can do, right? God can, so pray about that sort of thing. You know what I mean? Like there's plenty of stuff that we can't do. But I'll bet there's times where we pray for something when we could be the answer to that prayer. Or we ask for intervention or, or blessing. Maybe we could be the vehicle of that blessing. And I think it's a challenge because we see that's exactly what Ruth challenges Boaz on. It's nice that you prayed that God would bless me. How about you be a blessing? (laughs) How about you be the answer to that prayer? What we see is that God works through his people. God uses the chesed of his people to bring blessing. To his people. And one of the beautiful pictures that we see in here is is that we find three people, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, all acting humbly toward and for the good of somebody else. Naomi wants Ruth taken care of. And so she says, Here's what you need to do. You go talk to Boaz so that he will take care of you. Ruth wants what's best for Naomi. And Boaz wants what's best for Ruth and Naomi. You find three humble people acting on chesed, loyalty, and love, and kindness towards somebody else. Not, it wasn't about them, it wasn't about themselves, they were thinking about other people. And that's why I think it's so beautiful. If they'd just been all like three very selfish people... It wouldn't be a beautiful story. It might be an interesting story, but it wouldn't be a beautiful story. Why is this a beautiful story? Because you've got three people who are humble and seeking what is best for somebody else. And that's attractive. We're attracted to that as human beings. We look at that and we go, wow, that is amazing. And then we tend to go, yeah, that's amazing for them. (laughs) You know, like... um... But it is, there's something incredible about that. Again, I'm going to quote Tim Keller. He says, uh, one of the things that he said that was really just easy to remember and it was impactful to me is that humility is not thinking less of myself, but rather thinking of myself less. And maybe he didn't make that up. Maybe somebody else did. But anyway, it's in one of his books called The Art of Self-Forgetfulness. Where he says that, and I think that's important to remember. It's not humility is not just like, "Oh, I'm terrible" or "I'm a bad person," or something like that's not humility. Humility is actually thinking less of myself, or thinking of myself less. The other one is false humility, and so we find that God uses the chesed of His people to bring blessing to His people. In 3.10, Boaz says that uh, Ruth has even more family loyalty than she did before. Before is when she left Moab with Naomi. And Boaz looks at what what she's doing, the risks that she's willing to take in order to take care of herself and her her mother-in-law, the risk that she is willing to take, the faith that she is willing to step out in, and he recognizes this is even more incredible than what you did before. What happened in chapter 1, that's incredible. But what you're doing right now is even more incredible. She didn't go after some young husband that could just take care of her. Instead, she went after what seemingly is a much older man, but a family redeemer who could take care of her whole family, even the ones who are deceased, the legacy who could still continue the legacy of her dead husband, who could take care of her mother-in-law and would take care of her as well. And so if we're going to be people of chesed, what do we need? Well, again, going back to last week, Boaz, we talked about last week, was called a um, Gabor Hayil, which we talked about, that's often translated as like a man of valor, a man of strength. Uh, in this case, the new living rightly translates it wealthy and influential. It has all of those connotations, all of those meanings. But here, Ruth is called ha'iel. And so if we're going to be people of hesed in the world, we need to become people who are hayil, which the new living translates virtuous virtuous. Now, going back to week one, we talked about how in, in kind of the Hebrew, old, the Hebrew Bible, Ruth actually comes after Proverbs. And in Proverbs 31, we read about the virtuous woman and what she is like. And Ruth is the exemplar. Everything that Proverbs 31 talks about a woman, how she should be, we find this foreign woman to be that person, the Moabite. To be everything that an Israelite woman was supposed to be. She is the ideal woman. But I think that word is important, that hayil, because it's not only used of women, it's not only used in Proverbs 31 and of Ruth, it's used throughout the scripture, and it's usually translated valor or translated strength. It can be translated virtuous. But we see that in spite of her hardships and the disadvantages of being foreign, Ruth was a woman of character. She was a woman of strength. And she was a woman of courage. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that if even there for us men in the room as well, for every one of us, if we want to be people who are able to live that biblical ideal of chesed, showing that love and that kindness and that faithfulness, To others. We need to be people of character, of courage, of strength. God wants to form you into a high yield person, into a strong, virtuous, valorous person. He wants you to live as a person of character and of strength and courage. And this is why we have talked ad nauseum in church throughout the years about spiritual formation. Who I am becoming. And we're not going to take the time to talk about that today. But suffice it to say, we need to be practicing spiritual disciplines and formation to become the type of person that God wants us to be through the power of his spirit, and again, this is after I've been saved, okay? This is not like I try really hard to be good so that God will save me. This is, says I have received a gift from God and now I want to become the kind of person He wants me to be. And then we, are, we become people who are able to naturally live like that life of chesed. And so... We've talked a lot about this, but again, as we kind of come towards the end here, the primary purpose of Ruth, and I want to remind us of this, is to teach us about God. It's not necessarily to teach us you know, how to be our best you or anything like that. It's to teach us about God. Ruth teaches us that God is a God of chesed. That he is a God of kindness, of loyalty, and love. As Exodus thirty four six tells us, that He is filled with unfailing love and faithfulness, and so our chesed is not predicated on the kindness of others or other people's loyalty or other people. Like we're not nice because people are nice to us. Instead, our chesed, our kindness, our loyalty, our love towards others is motivated by God's loyalty and kindness and love and faithfulness towards us. And we see this most fully in Jesus, who laid down his life for us. As John says in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. And so as we come to the end, I want to go back to the beginning of chapter 3. That idea of rest. This word for rest that Naomi uses. That Ruth would find rest. We find it in Lamentations three. We see it in Deuteronomy. We see it in Genesis. In Lamentations, it talks about how the people of Judah are in exile and have no resting place. In Genesis chapter 8, the story of the flood, we see the dove returning to the ark because there was no resting place. We as human beings seek rest. We seek rest because we were made by a God who rested. We were created for rest. We were created not just to like sit back and relax, but we were created to enjoy the rest of security and safety. Of peace. Rest in the midst of trouble and trial. And that's what we long for, isn't it? What we find then is truest and complete rest is only found in Christ. In fact, the author of Hebrews takes like all chapter four of Hebrews works on this theme. I'm just going to read a little bit of it for us as we come to come to a finish. In Hebrews four, verses nine to eleven, the author of Hebrews says this: There is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. And in verses 14-16, to he goes on to say, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly before the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find his grace to help us when we need it most. We long for rest. We seek rest. And when we step out in faith and we trust the God of the Bible, Yahweh. When we look at what Jesus has done for us, the great high priest, as the author of Hebrews has said it, who understands our weaknesses, who came to earth and showed us true chesed. When we step out in faith and we trust God, We find rest even amidst the suffering that is still in this world. And we look forward to the day of that final rest where all will be at peace, where all will be right. Our ultimate rest is not found in a good marriage. It's not found in a nice family or in security. Instead, those things are pointers to the ultimate rest that is only found in Christ. And so, I don't know, that's a lot. It's a lot for me, anyway. I think there's a lot to work through in all of that. But look, if you need somebody to talk to, somebody to pray with, like after church, like I'd be happy.